sure that they get those as well so we can use digital to our benefit if we will so good to see y'all again today i want to make sure that i don't don't uh ask you to continue to be in prayer for our own sister annette davis and loss of her sister who lived in chicago will dean davis passed away this week so please be in prayer for sister annette we have been in a Bible study series. Title Pressure Point. Teachers let some steam off that pressure point a minute ago, there. Yeah. Did that Mariah Carey thing. Hiding it. God bless you today for this music ministry and for and 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 I, I know what's been happening on Saturday. I, I know what's been happening. Choir has been going on. <laughs> huh? All right. Praise the Lord. Uh, I can't wait. Um, we started out a few weeks ago with the sermon series uh, to lead off this and we started out with a sermon to lead off this series that's entitled Pressure Points the points that cause us to really double down on our Christian faith really double down on who we are and how how we walk out what we talk. How do we do it? When we get to a place in life that the flesh seems to take over completely, how do we draw ourselves back in line? So we named the, the title of the series is Pressure Points. What happens when we get to that pressure point? We've been using as a foundational study the book of James walking our way through James and seeing how James gives us advice on practical faith. Practical faith is important. One thing for me on Sunday to bring you in here and preach and ask you to feel good. We can do that, but I think what's even more important is that we give you something that can help you to be good, do good, walk good. Some of you say, well, I'm already doing it, but I'm, I'm just foolish enough to believe that no matter how old you are, you, there's some issues that you got to deal with. You may have figured out how to 
cover them up, but they are there. And maybe they're better than they used to be. But, but, but somebody knows how to, somebody knows how to get you going. Whether they do it intentionally or not, if it ain't nothing but fussing and cussing at the TV in the evening, that's what they say, something is getting to you. So how do we get better? We started out talking about who is the best example of how to deal with the pressures of life? Who can we look to? And certainly we thought that the person to look for as the best example of anything is Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at how Jesus taught and dealt with the issues, the issues of life in the context of these trials. And so the first week we looked at how Jesus dealt with trials, how he dealt with trials. And um, we use as a central thought, mama told you there'd be days like this. Maybe she didn't, but you know now, the day comes when things just get all, uh, when all of it happens at the same time. Yeah, the dog won't bark, cat won't meow, fish won't swim. Bacon won't fry in the skillet. I mean, it just, everything happened at the same time. The car's out of gas. <laughs> Ain't nobody there to help you put air in the tire. Uh, yeah, the refund check you were expecting, gone, uh, was now a deficit. <laughs> yeah, trials. And then um, we moved on the next week to a topic to deal with temptation. How do you deal with temptation? That's the question. What's tempting to you? Because what tempts you may not be a temptation for me. Uh, you, you may not start sweating when you see a big chocolate cake. Somebody does. Somebody does. They know that, that that's it. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. It, you know, uh, there may be other things that tempt you. Um, and that was entitled, The Devil Made Me Do It. Um, and then partiality, how do we deal with favoritism? Does God have favorites is what was our next sermon series. Does God have favorites in there? And the answer to that you didn't hear was no, God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't show favoritism. And <clears throat> the next one was talking about how words can mess, mess us up. Last week we talked about how words, uh, can mess us up and many of us have talked into problems that we couldn't walk out of real quick or easily. And so we use the admonition, you better watch your mouth. Um, and today we're going to talk about um, something that I believe touches everyone. Um, we're gonna talk about conflict, conflict, fighting, and we're going to use as a central thought, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? Or maybe I should ask this question. Why can't we all just, just get along? Why can't we all just get along? Those old enough or uh, been around enough to know the famous line from, the line made famous from Rodney King, the late Rodney King. Um, still reverberates today, maybe even more so. You got to ask yourself, what is it? What is it today that drives all the conflict that we're having in our communities? What is it that's making people harm one another? 
indiscriminately. What is it that makes people so afraid to go out and do the normal things of life? The normal, I mean, just go to the grocery store, go to church, drive down the street, go to school. Uh, certainly there was a time in my life when if you had paid me a million dollars, I would have said one a person would never be harmed, a child would never be harmed at school. I'd have taken that. I would have taken that bet and been fairly certain that it was true. I would have also doubled down on that bet if you raised it and said, what about at church? I'd have said, nobody's going to harm folk at church, at church, even though there have been isolated incidents of people being harmed in churches, in churches. People forget, uh, the, you know, the sword that was in the house of the kings did not evade his mother who was assassinated on a Sunday morning at the piano. Yeah. So things happened, but they were in isolation. We're talking about every week now. We're talking about this year. There probably been over 200 mass shootings just in this country. And what's amazing about this is we, you know, you know, I'm glad to be an American. We sing that song. We sing the patriotism that comes with it, but only in this country. Do we have mass shootings like this? Only in this country do we harm people like this. And surely we got enough sense to be able to solve this issue. The question is, do we have enough resolve to do it? I don't have any doubt that collectively you can go into any city in America and there's enough smart people in that city to solve this problem. You don't have to be geniuses. We don't need no think tanks <laughs> to solve this problem. But we do need people who have the courage to make it better. But then behind all that, what's causing it? Well, what's causing it? Because in case you haven't realized, it's, it's, it's affecting black and brown communities more than anybody else. And let's take away the mass shooting. Let's take away the high profile ones that come on. Let's just go to every weekend in certain cities around the country. Let's go to them. And let's just see how many 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds will never get to their next birthday. And over what? N nothing that we can put our finger on, nothing that has value to us, and yet there's conflict all around us. And those are just the high profile ones, but what about the conflict that's going on in other houses? What about the conflict that's going on in your house? Yeah, it may not rise to the level of, of, of getting attention, but yet it still is conflict. And I'm talking, and I love this, James is talking to believers. He's not talking to those who are outside the house of faith. He's talking to those who are in the body of Christ. How do you deal with the conflict that goes on in your life? You know, you can get desensitized to things. You can fuss so much that you stop listening to it. Some people have fussing as their language. It's how they communicate with you. Always fussing always that irritated tone in their voice when they're talking. It's complicated. So how do we deal with that? And James chapter 4 verses 1 through 10 gives us an underlying scripture. Let me read it. This is, at, I think, I chose the New Century version of the Bible. It said, do you know where your fights and arguments come from? He just jumped right on. <laughs> He said, they come from the selfish desires that war within you. Yeah, yeah. 
Nope, this is not a warm and fuzzy. No. You want things, but you do not have them. So you are ready to kill and are jealous of other people, but you still cannot get what you want. So you argue and fight. You do not get what you want because you do not ask God. This is what James is right. Or when you ask, you do not receive because the reason you ask is wrong. You want things so that you can use them for your own pleasures. So you are not loyal to God. You should know that loving the world is the same as hating God. Anyone who wants to be a friend of the world becomes God's enemy. Do you think the scripture means nothing that says the spirit that God made to live in us wants us for himself alone? But God gives us even more grace, as the scripture says, God is against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's Proverbs 3 and 34. So give yourselves completely to God. Stand against the devil and the devil will run from you. Come near to God and God will come near to you. You sinners clean, uh, clean sin out of your lives. You who are trying to follow God and the world at the same time, make your thinking pure. Be sad, cry and weep. Change your laughter into crying and your joy into sadness. Humble yourselves in the Lord's presence and he will, he will honor you. He will honor you. My goodness. That's a powerful 10 verses. It just comes right out and tells us where we error in our thinking. And I also want you to be aware of Matthew. Jesus said, verses 23 and through 25 of chapter 5, he says, so when you offer your gift to God at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Go and make peace with that person. And then come and offer your gift. That, that is a powerful lesson there. Right there. There's a powerful lesson in what Jesus just said. And he said, and if your enemy is taking you to court, mm -mm, become friends quickly before you go to court. Otherwise, your enemy might turn you over to the judge and the judge might give you to a guard to put you in jail. Mm. Yeah. Verse 15 says, if your fellow believer sins against you, go and tell him in private what he did wrong. If he listens to you, you've helped that person to be your brother or sister again. But if he refuses to listen, go to him again and take one or two other people with you. Every case may be proved by two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell, tell the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, then treat him like a person who does not believe in God or like a, this is awful, like a tax collector. Yeah. Tells you just what, what esteem or lack thereof tax collectors had at that time. People hated them. People hated them. In the United States, there are more lawyers per capita than in any other, any other country in the world in the United States. And the, the data that I, ha I have is very dated, but at the time it was taken, there were 799,960 licensed attorneys or lawyers in the United States. 
almost 800,000 licensed. I'm certain it's probably almost double since then. At that time, there was one lawyer for every 320 people in the country. Wow. So a lot of lawyers. Obviously, they need something to do. And guess what they do? They figure out ways to sue people, figure out ways to bring action. They figure out ways to see if there's a wrinkle somewhere. And if there's a wrinkle, they exploit it. That's what lawyers do. And sometimes you are on the wrong side of that equation. Sometimes it benefits you, but sometimes it's to your detriment. And sometimes it seems so frivolous to you. You know why? Because it is. It is frivolous to you, but they have, well, we have, let me not exclude myself. We have figured out ways to help people who were really struggling. That's happened. But we've also created areas where there is no struggle. And we're simply exploiting loopholes in laws that we find. And it has made us a very litigious society. We'll sue over anything. For example, the famous case that's probably as frivolous as they come is the case that happened uh, with Stella Liebeck. Stella Liebeck decided one morning on her way to work, she was going to stop by McDonald's and get something for breakfast. She ordered a cup of coffee. She got the cup of coffee. And when she got the cup of coffee into her car to leave, she spilled it on herself. She turns around and sues McDonald's for the injury she sustained. And a jury decided that McDonald's, the deep pocket, was liable and awarded her for the spilled coffee in her lap $2.9 million. $2.9 million. Yeah, in damages. It was a New Mexico jury. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why she may have gotten that judgment. One, McDonald's sent the long, wrong lawyers in there, to be honest with you. That's not to say that McDonald's didn't have some complicity in perhaps how hot, you know. Today, it would probably be worse because I'm telling you, don't send nothing back in saying it ain't hot enough. Because they're going to put it in the microwave and push nuclear <laughs> on it. And it's going to be so hot you can't hold it. Um, so don't do that. But this is simply an example of what we do. The reason why you have, the reason why you have, and if you haven't paid any attention to this, instructions, warnings on ladders is because somebody climbed a ladder, fell off the ladder, it wasn't me, and sued the manufacturer of the ladders for saying, you should have warned me that if I climbed this ladder and did ABC, I would have fallen. They sued and were successful. And because of that, the ladder manufacturers now have to tell you, do not do this. Warning, big warnings on there. Do not put the ladder in water and use electricity. They have to put that on there to tell you that. Why? Because we will sue. Some, somebody sitting there saying, oh, yeah, that's a cause of action. I'm not trying to beat up on lawyers. Lord knows that I'm not. I mean, uh, some of my best friends are lawyers, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's literally true. Um, but we got to ask ourselves, is there a better way 
of solving issues. Those of you who own a home have thought when you've invited visitors to your home, there's been something that's happened in your home. You said, I may not need to do that because if they get hurt, they might sue me. And this could be your friend, your family, somebody you've known all your life. But the fact that we live in a society where that becomes an issue, no, you've had two bids. You can't have no more because if you go out and you have an accident, your lawyer gonna wanna turn around and sue me for it. And, and that, that, that becomes an issue for us. How do we get to that place? And what does it do for our relationships? That's what we're getting to. What does it do for our relationships when we're always guarded? When you always are skeptical of folks' motives, what does it do for your relationship? For those of you who, who follow Christ, those of us who follow Christ, we have a different standard than the world standard. We have bought completely into the world standard of dealing with conflict. And that starts to shape our relationship. We're even like that at the church. When people come asking for help, we've even gotten more guarded when it comes to helping people out. It's, uh, it's gotten to be pretty bad. But even those things that I'm talking about, as bad as they are, they're just external symptoms. What's going on internally? What do we learn about Jesus, or learn from Jesus about solving the problem internally, all right? Because we see the external action, but what's driving that? That's what we want to get to, and that's what Jesus is getting to. James is blunt. He doesn't, he doesn't hold anything back. He says about the source of our conflict that, and what he says is painful, but it's helpful. Painful, and it's often like that, that sometimes the, the best news you can get is one that causes you to cringe a little bit. Make, make, you, make you look at yourself so introspectively. And James just puts it out there. Um, the pressure of conflict we can overcome by identifying its source and by pursuing with humility the resolve, the resolution that pleases God. And so the source of our conflict, according to James, is in your heart. No matter what it is, it's in your heart. It comes from your desires. Now, this ain't going to feel good because when you start thinking about some of the arguments and discussions you get into with folks, you have to start looking at self before you look at them. All right? Most, most people will not accept this because they won't accept that they have some wrong in situations. But the truth of the matter is, the only one you can control in any situation like that is you. You can't control the other person. And so if you're waiting on other folks to change how they do things, you may just be waiting all your life for them to change. And you never resolve uh, anything. Yeah. The source of our conflict lies within. Let me see if I can make it straight or make it plain for you. Most marriage counseling starts um, in the same place during marriage and during uh, counseling. The, the therapist or uh, counselor will start asking the couple to list or express their greatest source of difficulty. That's what we identify, you know, and most folk will come up with the list is money, it's sex, it's 
children or something else as an outside stressor that brings pressure into the relationship. That's how most of them start. But occasionally it'll hit on issues like I don't trust this person or we have spiritual differences or his family too involved and I lied, my family too involved. Now, those things, those are typically the issues. But most couples spend the majority of their time in couples counseling attempting to iron out those external differences. You can see how difficult that would be to deal with those external differences, how you get your family straight and, and, and maintain your relationship. That becomes difficult. And so what James is saying, you're starting at the wrong place. James is saying, under these circumstances, this is not how you resolve conflict. Now, there's some value in trying to get those things together, but James goes a different way. He goes to the heart of the conflict, and he says, stop blaming things and external consequences and start looking at yourself and see what you have to do to straighten you out. Because if you can start straightening you out, then you can deal more effectively with the other situation. We start thinking, if this would change, then I would no longer be angry. That's what we say. That's what we say. If this, if you do this or that, then I'd be better. James says the source of our conflict is not what we're looking at. We're looking at the triggers of our conflict, and we're trying to change the triggers of our anger. Conflict among us came as a result, this is Bible, of the fall. And so everything, including our relationships, fractured because of the fall. It's Bible now. You, you expect perfection in an imperfect world. That's not happening. No, that's not, that's not easy. Let me say that. That's not easy. Perfection only comes when you're following the source of perfection. And if you're not following the source of perfection, if you're following the systems of the problem, then you're going to continue having the problem. And so when you follow the world order, guess what you're going to have? You're going to have the problems that come from the world. But fortunately for you, those of you who are in here who know and understand that there is a different order we can follow, those of you who know Christ, who understand Christ, can understand that there are different things that we can do. Let me see. Um, let, let, let me see if I can get it to you. 4 and 1, James 4 and 1 says, it, it is vital to us if we're going to live right. He says the source of our conflict is in the cravings that are at war within you. The cravings that are at war within you. So according to him, the source of our relations conflict, relational conflict, is a failure to please God. Ooh. Oh, so it's a huge quote, huge quote from a, a gentleman named Robert Jones, Robert B. Jones. <laughs> he wrote a book called Pursuing Peace. And Robert says that our failure or the other person's or both is the ultimate cause of all relational conflict. Whenever there's a conflict, this is gonna hurt you now. One or both parties is not trying to please God. 
Whenever there is a conflict, one, in terms of our relationship, one or both parties is not, is failing to please God. Yeah. So the source of our conflict with God is our failure, our failure to obey the Lord. This church now, this is church. You got to understand that when you are living a life that is displeasing to God, you're going to have conflict with someone. And let's let's just make it plain. If you have a spouse who is doing her level best to be God fearing and you're living other than that, y'all going to have problems. You're going to have consistent problems because he is not on the same sheet of music. Y'all not playing from the same sheet of music. So there's always going to be conflict. It's not until you're both working toward pleasing God that you can start to find harmony. Harmony. Now, that might not feel good. That might not even sound good. But it's the truth that one person cannot play all the music in a marriage. Solo won't work. You got to have a duet, and you got to let the Lord be the conductor in it if you're going to make beautiful music together. Yeah, and so what you're hearing is the chords of discontent, dissatisfaction, all these things, and that's why it doesn't sound like a symphony in your house, whether you acknowledge it or not. And the reason is God is in conflict with the world system. He's in conflict with it. God is not pleased with the world system because I told you last week, it's the devil, it's the enemy who is the ruler of this world. And so he is in conflict with God, so it stands to reason that his systems would be in conflict with God as well. And if that's what you're trying, if you're trying to please the world, you cannot be pleasing to God. If you're not, if you're not following him, y'all, y'all, God is in conflict with us when we make friendship with the world. So if I'm trying to be the biggest baller I can be out here, you best believe I'm struggling in my relationship with the Lord. Because that's not what he put you here for. Does that mean he doesn't want me to be, does that mean he doesn't bless me? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that God's not blessing you. It means you're not, you're not honoring the blessing that he's giving you. Because God... Somebody going to be upset when I say this, but I've said it a million times. God doesn't give you anything just for you. And if what you're using just benefits you, then you're struggling already in your relationship with the Lord. If God gives you good sense, it ain't just for you to have good sense. It's for you to know that you're supposed to be helping somebody else. It's for you to know that you're supposed to use that good sense to bless those who you come into contact with. It's for you to know that God gave you good sense so you can get a good job, so you can use that good job to help out other folk. And those folk might be in your house. They may not be in your house. But you need to be blessing somebody else with the good sense that God gave you. And oh, by the way, the good sense I got makes me have a good job. That's fine. That's not just so you can walk around looking good, but it's so you can walk around being and doing good. That's why God blessed you with good sense. Most folks think they got good sense just so they can be good, look good, 
smell good, eat good, talk good, and don't do good to other folks. You step over people. You don't pay attention to people. You don't strengthen them when you can. You don't do it. No, you do the best you can with what God has given you under the circumstances. And God doesn't expect you to do any more. He doesn't expect you to be superhuman. He simply expects that you will take what he's given you and use it to the best of your ability. God is, this is not going to feel good to you, jealous of your affections. He is. He's jealous for you. When you are spending all your time dealing with world systems, God's not pleased and he's jealous. Oh, I, I know it's true. You know how I know it? Because the Bible says it. Let me, let me read it for you. It says, <clears throat> anyone who wants to be a friend of the world is God's enemy. Do you think the scripture means nothing when it says the spirit that God made to live in us wants us for himself alone? He's jealous. He has blessed you so you can help other folk, but he wants you to honor him in that blessing. He deserves the glory because he made it all happen. He's jealous for your affection. Now, y'all act like that's offensive when you deal with situations right now. If you're in a relationship and your significant other came and told you that they were jealous for you, you would be flattered. Oh, I don't want nobody else talking to you. Oh, you love me like that? Everything I do is for you. Oh, every dime I make is for you. That, that, that sends, the, you know, that just sends endorphins running through you. I got somebody who loves me exclusively. Why shouldn't God want that from us? Why shouldn't he want from us the kind of exclusivity we want from other folks? But we'll bend over backwards. We'll do everything we can for the affection of man to the exclusion of God. We'll chase a man who's chasing the world. A man will chase a woman that's running him from the church. How can God be pleased with that? He gave you sense enough to know what she is and what she's doing, and yet you spend all your time your money, your sense on her. Why would God be upset behind that? I started you on this journey and you ignore me for her, for that. Some people say that's love. That's not love. That's not love. We learned a long time ago that a good, significant other will either drive you to the church or draw you from it. you need to ask yourself which one is happening because God is not going you expect God to continue blessing you when all you're doing is taking what he's given you and giving it away to somebody who's not helping his people or his cause why would he continue to do that 
by any definition, by even the world standards, that's a bad investment. Why is he still blessing you, investing in you, and you don't know what to do with it? Yeah, he's going to take that and give it to somebody else. <laughs> oh, he could. The same disordered affection that caused your conflict with our fellow man may also cause conflict in our house, in this house. The same conflict, oh yeah, same conflict you have at the house, you'll bring to this house. Oh yeah, when things are out of order, come to this house. Yeah, that's just how life is. We cannot have hearts that ask of God in order that we spend it on our evil desires. You keep asking God to keep blessing you with more stuff so you can spend it not on his causes, but on your cause. Oh, yeah. The source of our conflict resolution comes from how we deal with our relationship with God. You want to know how you get the conflict together? Then it all starts with the basic Bible teaching that we've been studying, that we continue to expound upon over and over again. How do I get better, Reverend Sparks? What do I do to make this better? Well, it's your heart attitude that covers it all. It's, it's your heart. It's who you love. So the, the question you must ask yourself is, who do I love? Do I love the Lord? I know you sang the song, but do you? Mm, I, I know you sang the Whitney Houston version. I love the Lord. But do you love him? It sounds good, but do you? Because... Because I know my wife loves me because she shows me. Not just because she says it, because you can say anything. Y'all don't want to hear me. You can send me a card. You can even buy me a flower. Yeah. But not on my getting up smiling days but on my laying down trials days that's when I know she loves me when she does it to the exclusion of herself that's when I know she loves me when she does the things that one I can't do for myself and she does it for me and I don't have to say will you do this for me she's showing me she loves me now. You put, you put the Lord in that context when he's doing the things for you that you can't do for yourself, when he's providing for you as he has been, when he's made your way out of no way. And you want to turn around and give credit to your degree? You want to give credit to your 401k? You want to give credit to your job, to your retirement check? No. No, 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 no. You got to learn how to give credit where credit is due. Your success does not come from your brilliance. Who do you love? Who do you love? And it all begins with grace. Grace is never received by the proud. Grace is the balm that humble people long for. I know I didn't deserve it, but God blessed me anyway. People say that all the time. But I, I think sometimes we say it 
it's become cliche to say it. It's become cliche that we'll say. Yeah. Grace drenched in humility is how we start to overcome conflict. We start submitting to God. We start resisting the devil. We start seeking purity in all that we try to do in our thoughts and our actions. We start learning how to direct our emotions. We start, we start exalting the Lord because of the things he's done for us. Think about this. When I'm in conflict with somebody in my house and I see them struggling to communicate effectively with me, when I don't see them like God sees me, I'll fuss back with them. I might even start the argument knowing that they are in a spot. But when I look at a situation with humility, then I understand that this person is struggling to communicate effectively with me because I struggle to communicate effectively with the Lord. And some people have as their weapon, they can talk more than the other person. They can talk better than the other person. They can string words together better. And they use that language as a weapon. And that weapon means that because I'm talking, I'm not listening to you. And I'm not seeing you. And I'm not hearing the struggle that you have to communicate effectively with me. And I'm struggling. I'm struggling because we could deal with this small problem we have. But I know you can't tell me what's really going on with you right now. And I'm beating you up because you can't talk to me well. That's a struggle we have. But when I look at it with humility, I realize that there are some struggles that I have in my life that I can't explain to the Lord. But he blesses me anyway. I realize that there's some relationships that I have with people who ought to be better. It ought to be better, but I can't explain to the Lord why it's not. He graces me anyway. When I start giving other people the grace that I get from God or that I expect from God, then I stop having as many conflicts with them. And that starts in my house. Humility is the pathway to, to solving conflict. Humility. Humility. I'm not better than, I can't do more than, I don't know more than, I'm struggling. I am in the same spot this person is in. James 4, 1 through 3 says that the cravings that we have within us underlie our conflict. What's a craving? That I got to be right. I got a craving that I'm, you know, I know more than you do. I'm the boss. I got a craving. Couples who see what rules them, couples who understand what's driving them can deal with those issues. But when you don't ever wrap your mind around the cravings you have for affection, for attention, for power to be vindicated, I got to be right. When you don't ever wrap your mind around that being the source of conflict that you have, then you can't get your conflict under, you can't deal with your conflict. Some people just want to be right all the time. They have a need to be right all the time. And when you need to be right all the time, that's a problem. That's a problem because sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you're just wrong. But you will be arguing just to prove I told you so. Well, I'm right. That lacks humility. 
So Jesus's advice about conflict resolution can be summed up four, word, four, four ways. We're going to say it and we're going to get out of here. All right. Four things. It's simple. His, his, his advice about conflict resolution with anybody, not just in your house, but with anybody, can be solved by the first one is you do it quickly. Everybody say quickly. You do it two, face to face. Say face to face. Three, you do it one on one. Yeah. And then the fourth is you get some help. Say get help. Okay. Now let me show you this. You either you do it quickly, you do it face to face, you do it one on one, and if you can't do it yourself, you get some help. All right. This is Jesus's methodology for conflict resolution. It's right, it's right in scripture. I'm not making this up. This ain't the world systems. This is what Jesus said we ought to do in his Sermon on the Mount. He says that it's more important if a person harbors ill against a brother, and by brother, he means maybe biological, but he means other believer, all right? And it and also certainly implies sister, but another person is more important, important, according to Jesus, that if you got a problem with somebody, and you're coming to the altar to pray and remember you got a problem. Jesus said you ought to leave the altar. Go straighten out the problem with that person and then come back to the altar. Now, this is a problem because you can get folk confused in this. Jesus is implying that fellowship takes precedence to worship. The implication is there because I'm coming to the altar in worship. But what I really believe he's saying is that you can't have true worship and not have good fellowship. In other words, don't come here to this altar with a show of worship when your life is in discord in your fellowship. Get it straight with your brother or sister. And then you can come and truly worship me, is what he's saying. That's, that's powerful. And I realize this is hard on some people in here because you've been through some stuff with people in your life. They have harmed you. You got conflict with them, and it's valid conflict because they've hurt you. They've harmed you. And, and, and I don't want you to leave this place thinking that I'm trying to minimize the pain and the conflict you felt in your life. You've been victimized. You have been. But the question is, how do you push forward from that space you find yourself in? What's even more difficult is some of you have been victimized by people you can't get resolution from because they died. They're no longer in your life. And so I want to give you something right now. I want to give you the power of release today. All right, for somebody who has harmed you, for somebody who has hurt you, I want to give you the power of saying, I release you from having to apologize to me today. That doesn't mean they didn't hurt you. It means that you claim the power of how this moves forward in your life. They're not going to control you anymore by what they've done for you you're going to take control of it. And I'm going to say, 
you don't owe me no more. Now, now I know this works because if you owe me fifty dollars and you didn't have fifty dollars, or you thought I was gonna get upset every time I saw you, I have the power to release you from the fifty dollar obligation. I have that power. So you can stop hiding from me. Stop not answering my text messages. Stop not calling me. Yeah, so we can get back to chopping it up the way we used to chop it up. I can say to you, man, forget that $50. Now, I know it's not that simple on some things. But what I want to impress upon you is you have the power through God's grace to be able to forgive people under those circumstances. And I know the background is hard, but your future is bright. But you can't keep dragging yesterday into tomorrow. You'll never get ahead if you keep trying to make your tomorrows like your yesterdays. You need to let tomorrow be the blessing that it's going to be. And oh, what a day when I can wake up on tomorrow and not be drowned by what happened yesterday. What a day. And I know that's frightening for some people because you've been anchoring on what happened yesterday. It's, it's, it's what makes you you. All right? You don't know what you would do without the anger in your life. You don't know what you would do without the sorrow in your life. And I got news for you. God's grace is in tomorrow, too. Just like he's carried you. It's all right. Come on. God's grace is in tomorrow as well. So the first thing you got to do is when somebody harms you, you go quickly to that person. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down. Don't let the sun go down. You go quickly to that person, and you deal with that person quickly. All right? The reason I told you about somebody you can't resolve because they may be gone, but go quickly in those situations. Not only that, you do this. You go face-to-face -to, -face to them. Go face-to-face. -face. You go talk to them. Now, in 2022, this is a problem because y'all think y'all can apologize on the text. We do. We struggle with that. That's a problem because texting has no context. <laughs> there is no, you can't see emotion in email. You can't see emotion in text. It's hard to see emotion on the telephone. Think about how we've come now, how far we've come. Face-to-face -face used to be the only option we had if you were going to get an apology. And then we got the messed-up option of being able to write somebody a letter. Yeah, I apologize. I am sorry. And that started a trend that has moved from handwriting to the telephone to email, now to text messaging. And it's all gone downhill, and we need to turn around and go right back to the original way. We need to be able to say, I'm sorry. Look somebody in the eye face to face. All right? So while you might feel better by pushing that email out, it doesn't do anything for the other person. And it may even only confuse and make the situation worse. Yeah. All guilty. I'm guilty of that because sometimes it's emotion that you react on most of the time, it's emotion, right? So face-to-face, -face, and then the last thing is one-on-one, one-on-one. -on -one. 
one on one. Now, sometimes this is a problem because you shouldn't be talking to anybody about somebody until you've talked to that person. I know you react real quick. Man, let me tell you what such and such did. Uh-uh. Uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh. You got a problem with what somebody did? You talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. Don't bring anybody else in it because you've just amplified the problem by bringing another person into it. And so you talk to them, and I, everybody in here is guilty of that, so you don't have to say, oh, I don't do that. Yeah, everybody does it. If you don't do nothing, get off the phone mad and say, you know what she just did to me? Talk to them about the problem you have. There's only one exception to that rule, and that's when you pray about it. You can talk to the Lord about it. Talk to the Lord about what you're going to say. In fact, I advise you, before you go talk to anybody, you talk to the Lord, ask him to give you the word, give you the context, give you the humility to be heard and to hear for somebody and say, there's a marriage counselor who counsels couples, and when they get ready to leave the first time, or before they get ready to leave the first time, he asks each partner to identify 10% of the problem that they have, 10% of the problem. Say, identify 10% of the problem that you can control and that you can change. Now, what does that do? Well, that first of all, that gives them something tangible to work toward, and it's something that they can do to themselves. They don't have to depend on their partner. I can find the 10%. 10% is such a number that anybody can pretty much come up with, all right, I own 10% of this issue. Guess what happens when you come back the next time? The council's already solved 20% of your marriage problem. All right, because both of you have already admitted and come up with a solution to 20% of it. So it's a starting place for resolving the rest of what you have. And so I'm telling you right now, you find the part that you know you've done wrong. And you start with that as a foundation to correcting a problem that somebody that you may have with somebody. The last thing is this the Bible says clearly that when you talk to this person, if they don't hear you, then you go get some help. The first thing you do is you go get another person and you bring that person with you sort of as a mediator, sort of as a mediator. And if they listen, then great. You want a friend back. But if they won't listen, when you bring the mediator in and you go get two more folks, because the Bible says two or three can be witnesses to anything. They don't listen to that. Bible says that the church gets involved. If they won't listen to the church, then the Bible releases you from further obligation to try to mediate that situation. That's a hard thing. That's a hard thing. It says you release, treat them like a tax collector. Good God Almighty. We're not talking about the IRS, y'all. No. We're not. Anybody that work for the IRS, I'm sorry. No, we're talking about those hated people who took advantage of the, of the, of the Jews at that time. And the sad thing about it is they were of the Jews and they treated them like outsiders. But the Bible releases you from that obligation. But can I tell you, even if you're released from that obligation, doesn't mean it doesn't bring pain to you in your life. So go to that person quickly. Go face to face. Face to face is important. You go one on one. 
and then you get help if you can't do it by yourself. That's how you resolve conflict the Bible way. What about the conflict you have if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior? Oh, you may not even know that you have this conflict. Yeah, but I can tell you this. If nobody's told you that you're at, you're at war with God, you may not even know it. I know you may be receiving, receiving some benefit. You may think the Lord let the sun shine on you today when actually he was letting it shine on all his children. You just got a benefit from it. Yeah, that's okay, but the day is going to come when you're going to exclusively need something from the Lord. And if you've never accepted him as your own, then that's a problem. You've never accepted him as your own. Can I tell you, he made a way for you to have a relationship with him. And that's by sending his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's peace offering to the world. And Jesus Christ came and fully paid the debt that we owe. Remember a few minutes ago when I said that if somebody owes you $50, you can forgive the debt? Well, God has forgiven us the sin debt we have. And the reason he forgave the sin debt is because Jesus paid the price for us. And he paid the price by coming here and living with us and dying for us. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't owe any debt, but he paid the price for us. And once he died, God looked at every member of creation, every man that had been born then and since then. And what he's saying is, if you believe in my son, Jesus Christ, if you accept his death, you don't owe me anything. That's how he forgave us. My question is, have you accepted that gift? If you've never accepted that gift, then now is the opportunity for you today to accept that gift. What do you get if you accept that gift? My Bible tells me that I get to live eternally, forever, in glory with the Lord. So that means I, may, I will die, may die uh, on this side before he comes back to get me. But if not, I know without a doubt I've got a home over in glory. And that matters to me. Because I know some people who've already gone over there and they're waiting. I know my mama, my dad, they're waiting. I know my friends, my grandparents. I got a cousin. I can't wait to see them one more time and I get to live with them eternally. And I got folk in this church who I spent great time with, who I can't wait to see again. I'm looking forward to the time I can spend in glory with them. But even more important than all those people, I get to meet Jesus. I get to see him one-on-one -on -one and face-to-face. -face. Every day for the rest of life, for the rest of eternity. Have you made that decision? If not, then the doors of our church are open, and I'm inviting you to come and become a part of this family, this faith family. This family of people who believe. And in so doing, you can become a member of this church too. We learn how to live right, live better. Not perfectly, but we live better. We try anyway. While the musicians sing this song for us, doors of our church are wide open. Whosoever will, let them come right now.